Well, let's all stand together and let's read, or I will read to you, since this is a narrative, I'd like to read it to you so that you can listen and, and uh, think more carefully about the rest of this narrative. I want to read to you Ruth chapter 4. We come this morning to the culmination of the book of Ruth. Ruth 4, 1 through 22, listen to the inspired word of God. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one else beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, oh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So then the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then, Naomi, or then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Our Father, You are magnificent. You are a glorious, sovereign God who determines the end from the beginning. You, in Your steadfast love, have done great things for us. We are glad of them. You, in Your providential hand, faithfully working all things together for our good and Your glory, have shown us great kindness. Father, we can see it in the story of Ruth, and so often we miss it in our own lives. Let us indeed today be helped by Your Word. Help us, God. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our frailty. Help us in our short-sightedness. Help us in our faithlessness, in our doubt, in our fear. Help us, God, by Your Spirit. Lift our eyes to see the eternal perspective, to see the glory of Your steadfast love and faithfulness, to trust You, to turn from the things of this world, to turn from our own sinfulness, to turn from our unfaithfulness, our faithlessness, to behold Your glory. Father, indeed we know that You cause all things to work together for the good of those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. That nothing can separate us from Your love. That indeed You grant us all things through Christ. We pray that You would enable us by Your Spirit through Your Word this morning to taste more sweetly of Your steadfast love from which we can never be separated. May we be changed by it. Save, Father. Save. Sanctify. For your glory, for our good, we pray it in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, our mediator. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. In steadfast love, Our sovereign God providentially, faithfully, gloriously brings His plans to fulfillment. Fulfillment. Culmination. He does this on very much smaller personal scales with each of us individually who are in Christ. He does this on larger scales, on the grandest scale of all, bringing all of redemptive history to a great and glorious consummation in Christ for eternity. 
God faithfully brings to fulfillment the plans that he has made. And nothing can frustrate those plans. Whatever he has purpose to accomplish, he will sovereignly, he will providentially, he will powerfully fulfill all that he has purposed and promised. Now, we know this from Scripture. And we know this from Scripture on a very personal level. Think about this. Hebrews 12.11 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But, what? Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you have been in Christ for any length of time, you have experienced the truth of this verse. Where God brings into your life seasons of greater intensity in training, in discipline, in trial, in instruction. But that's not the way necessarily the season of your life is sustained for the rest of your life. God then brings you out of that season to a season of fruitfulness. For the moment, there is a season of discipline. But later... There's a season of peaceful fruit, growth in righteousness, growth in holiness, growth in Christ-likeness. Our life in Christ is a series of ups and downs where God presses upon us seasons of discipline and training and testing, and then in, in the right time, brings us out of those to seasons of fruitfulness and greater Christ-likeness. Have you found that to be true? Trials come and go. Afflictions come and go. Testing comes and goes. And God is at work bringing to fulfillment His perfect plans over and over again. You see this on a personal level in a verse like 1 Peter 5-6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the right time, what? He may exalt you. God may have a season for you to feel the weight of His sovereign hand pressing down your life, bringing about greater godliness, but at the right time, He exalts you. And He bears fruit in your life. And you become useful to Him in a greater capacity. James 4.10 says the same thing. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This principle of personal trial and personal then fulfillment that God brings about graciously is found also in 1 Peter 5, 10-11. And after you have suffered a little while, <clears throat> the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That text certainly points to the sovereignty of God as well, doesn't it? His dominion, His providential sovereign hand carrying about all His purposes. Sometimes that restoration, that confirmation, that strengthening and establishing that is spoken of in those verses is in time. Sometimes it's in eternity. But God will fulfill His purposes for you who are in Christ. And what God has chosen not to bring about to fruition and fulfillment in time, He certainly does in eternity for all who are in Christ. Certainly. This is what you see in a verse like James 1.12. Blessed is the man who, what? Remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, what will happen? He will receive the crown of life. 
which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Or the verse you all know by heart, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or Romans 8.28-30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. What good? The good of the purpose that He calls us to. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, God works like that on a personal level with us, sometimes bringing to fulfillment in time, sometimes in eternity, and all at the same time, in His providence, in His sovereignty, God is continually working on a greater scale, working toward the consummation of all of His chosen covenant people, working toward the consummation of all things in Christ for eternity, forever. We, we hear this great anticipation in a verse like, 1 Corinthians 15.28 And when all things are subjected to Him, to Christ, the Son, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him so that God may be all in all. That's what we're looking forward to. When the last enemy, death, is finally removed from our experience completely and Christ is all in all and God is all in all. We think about the, the, the bookends of the promises of God, as it were. We think of Genesis 12, where God came to Abraham graciously, justified him by faith through his grace, and then promised him gospel promises like, I will give you a blessing. I will give you offspring. I will give you land. I will make you a blessing to the whole earth through your Offspring, which would ultimately be Christ. And you will be a blessing to the nations. Oh, make your name great and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Well, when does God bring all about, bring to complete fulfillment those promises? Well, we get a taste of it in Revelation chapter 5 when every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation are gathered together as a myriad of one people before the throne who are praising the Lamb who was slain who is worthy to receive that praise. You see, that's what God does. We see it in the life of Joseph exemplified, where we start in Genesis 37, and he's given a dream and told that he will be uh, an, an, an important part of God's redemptive purposes, but then he's taken down very quickly. He goes from being thrown into a pit to being thrown into prison and forgotten there. And then what God exalts him at the right time, 1 Peter 5, 6, doesn't he? At the right time. And through that purpose, Genesis 50.20 brings about great good and the salvation of many. Doesn't he? It's an amazing thing God does. In time to bring His purposes to fulfillment. And in eternity to bring His purposes to fulfillment. We see this in the life of Christ. Philippians 2, 5-11. Where the Son, the eternal Son, took on human nature and was pressed by the Father by greater and greater trials until He obeyed even to the point of death. Death on a cross. And as a result of that, what happened? God highly exalted Him and gave Him a name that is above every name. 
See, this is how God works. Over and over again. He works this way in the life of His Son and us who are in His Son. Here's here's the main idea. And again, it's another long one, but there's so many things to consider in this. And I think as we keep repeating these themes, they they will really just become a part of our hearts. In steadfast love. Yahweh, by His providence, faithfully brings to culmination the plans that He has made for us. For our blessing. For the good of His chosen people. For the consummation of His redemptive purposes in Christ. And for the eternal glory of His name. That's where the book of Ruth ends. That's where it takes us to. The short-term fulfillments, in a sense, are a foretaste of the eternal fulfillments of God's loving kindness and faithfulness. This is experienced as God graciously brings us through chastening and discipline and trial and testing as we experience maturity and fruitfulness and blessing and growth in Christ-likeness. And all of that, all of that takes place because of the steadfast love of God. He will not let us go. He will not give up on us. He is faithful to keep all of His promises. He is gracious to us and kind. And that's what's taking place in the lives of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi here in Ruth 4. Here's the culmination of the narrative. Now, I wanted to kind of put this together for us pictorially. I didn't do a very good job, but maybe we'll be able to follow this a little bit. Here's kind of a review, in a way, of the book of Ruth. Think of where we've been and now where we're going to. Everything, notice, has been guided by the sovereign providences of God. We've known that through cues that the the Hebrew writer gives to us. Like, it just so happened that it happened. That Ruth came into this field, right? Everything in this narrative screams to us like there is more at work than meets the eye. God's faithful hand of providence is behind all things. He has brought these people into His plan and kept them faithfully in His plan by His steadfast love. And He is bringing His plan to fulfillment, to culmination, by His faithfulness. We've we've noticed themes of fullness and emptiness and fullness and emptiness. The, The whole story began with a famine and we see Elimelech and, and Naomi and her family leaving Bethlehem, the house of bread, filled up with themselves, filled up with pride, their own, their own unbelief, and so they leave the place of God's promises, they leave the place of God's protection, and they go and seek human wisdom and human provision in the land of Moab. We have at the beginning of this, rebellion, unbelief. Elimelech is not a good husband and father at the beginning of this story, right? He's not. He's leading his family away from God's promises. Away from covenant faithfulness. And so, they left full, but God faithfully brought them to a humble emptiness, didn't He? Why? So that He could then fill them with a divine fullness And that's the remainder of the story. And the fullness just keeps filling and overflowing. It's it's a a perfect picture of it is how Boaz sends Ruth home with more barley grain than she can carry. Right? 
God's fullness cannot be outdone. This is the path. This is a picture of the path from fall to glory. That God, in His steadfast love and faithfulness, will bring everyone whom He chooses. Everyone who, by His grace, trusts in His promises. And so to bring these people along, He moves them from rebellion. And remember, think about not only Elimelech and Naomi, but Ruth. Ruth's over here. She's, she's a Moabite. She's grown up in a pagan nation. She's worshiping a false god. She's living a life of sin. And God then works in their lives and brings them into affliction. Is God doing that to be mean? Is the the eternal judge standing over their head with a a divine weighted rolling pin? No, He is doing that in His steadfast love because He has so much planned for them. For his own glory. And so the affliction comes upon them. They lose husbands. They lose sons. And God in his grace brings them to conversion. Right there, somewhere between Moab and Israel. They're brought to conversion. Ruth begins to say, I'm leaving my family behind. I'm taking the family of God. I'm leaving my God behind. I'm taking Yahweh I'm committing to be committed to Him. I will trust in Him no matter what. Even though I'm going into a place that looks like I'm not going to get married and I'm not going to have provision, I'm not going to have protection, I'm not going to have the fulfillment of all the pleasures that I longed for since I was a little girl, I'm going to trust Yahweh. I'm going to trust Him. and I'm Okay, I have to work for the rest of my life and live with this, this old widow lady who's my mother-in-law and I'll, and I'll provide for her, but God means more to me. I'll trust in Yahweh. And and the theme that we've seen woven through there that comes from the words of Boaz, it says, you have taken shelter under the shadow of the wings of Yahweh. That's that's conversion. That's that's conversion that happened in in, in, in Ruth's life. And then we see throughout chapter 2 this preparation where God is forming His own character in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. We see it displayed all over chapter 2, where steadfast love is reflected in their lives for one another. And God's forming them graciously, and then He brings them into association with one another. And through that association, He has divine plans coming that they don't know about yet. It just so happened that it happened. Here comes Ruth. Here comes Boaz. Just at the right time, just the right place, all by God's providence. And through that relationship, he provides protection and provision, not just to Ruth, but Naomi. He provides to Boaz, as we see, a a bride and greater blessings in the covenant family. He preserves them, chapter 3, through a very precarious situation that, that was brought upon them through Naomi's impatience. Though her heart was to do God's will. And today we're going to look at the culmination of all of this and see that there is a great exaltation that God has planned for them so that they can be then used in a way that they never imagined, never imagined in a million years, right? Can you? Ruth and Boaz had no idea what God was planning to do in their lives. Through all of this. And wonder of wonders, the consummation of the ages that would result through God's plans. It all began way back here. It included rebellion and and affliction and and conversion and so on. Look where God is bringing them. 
This is what we're to see in the book of Ruth. And to look at the steadfast love of God that brings people into this such, such a life and works in their life and keeps them in such a path and then brings himself great glory through their lives, through the mundane things. They would never have expected it. But God did great things according to his will. In steadfast love, Yahweh, by his providence, faithfully brings to culmination the plans that he's made for us, for our blessing, for the good of his chosen people, for the consummation of his redemptive purposes in Christ, and for the eternal glory of his name. Well, let's look at it. Let's see how this story portrays these truths. Number one, a culmination for Boaz. Now, something interesting, again, about the way Hebrew language goes is the first person that we, we had, we, we were introduced to at the beginning of Ruth, was which person? Of the three, Naomi was first, right? She was the first one. Then we were introduced to Ruth. Then we were introduced to Boaz. Now, Boaz is the first one to leave the stage. And then Ruth, and last, Naomi. And that's purposeful as well, because God is completely reversing what you see from the beginning. He is taking brokenness and sorrow and sin and bringing about great glory and restoration from it for his own redemptive purposes. So a culmination for Boaz, verses 1 through 12. Let me read first of all here, again, verses 1 1 through 3. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took, the t- took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now as we begin to look at this culmination for Boaz, there's something very important that we have to realize and not confuse. It's important to recognize in this final chapter, that Boaz's fulfillment here, his culmination, his blessing, his joy, comes to him as the fruit of his godly responses to the Word of God and the providence of God. This is an important principle to learn. It comes, this culmination, this blessing, comes to him as the fruit of his godly responses to the Word of God and the providence of God. Now, the reason why I said, please don't misunderstand this, is because I don't want us to confuse what I'm saying here with legalism, for example, or please don't confuse what I'm saying with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, because that's not this either. Boaz is not earning a righteous standing before God by his works, right? That's not what we have here. Boaz is not expecting God to be his slave, as it were, being bound to give him earthly treasure and physical ease every time he demands it. That's not this either. But make no mistake, in understanding that Boaz's godly responses, that that we see here the fruit of his Godward faith-filled heart, which has been transformed by what? 
by the grace of God, by the steadfast love and grace of God. Boaz's life has been filled with the grace of God. And the Scriptures do clearly teach us that the fulfillment and the blessing that God graciously grants to us normally comes to us as the outcome of the godly character He has graciously formed in us. Isn't that the message of Psalm 1, for example? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. It's not his burden. It's his delight. Why? Because his heart has been changed by the grace of God. He has a new heart. And in his law, therefore, he meditates day and night. And what's the result of that kind of grace-changed heart and grace-transformed life? He will flourish. In his law, he meditates day and night. Therefore, he will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, what? He prospers. In God's economy, that's how it works. That's how it works. God has graciously made Boaz into a Psalm 1 man. Now, let's look at it. Let's look and see, even in this section, how how Boaz's heart has been changed by grace and how how he is living in love with Yahweh and and Yahweh's law. First, I want you to see here that, that Boaz did not run ahead on his own human passions. Right? He's there. In the, in, the, in the threshing floor with Boaz there on, on chapter 3. Like, well, you love me and I love you and we're feeling really excited right now. Why don't we forget that closer, nearer Redeemer? Why don't we forget what Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25 say? Let's just, hey, let's, let's go and do what we need to do. Does Boaz do that? Does he lead Ruth to do that? No. He's a man who loves God's Word far more. He loves Ruth more than that. And so we see him here go to the trouble of doing all of this according to God's law. He goes up to the place where the elders of the city, the elders of the covenant family, and the people can witness. And the place, the gate here, he went to the gate. He goes to the place where there's lots of public interaction and where and where legal decisions are made, and where spiritual advice is given, and where accountability is abundant. And he says, we're going to work through the process of Deuteronomy 25 here, the the Leveret Law. We're going to do this. I'm going to go the extra mile in spite of how I'm feeling in my heart, and what I suspect in Ruth's heart, we're going to do what is best for Ruth and Naomi, and what brings glory to God. Wow, isn't that something to think about? Well, we could go a lot of places with that. And Lord willing, maybe we will next Sunday. We're going to take some application here next Sunday. But Boaz diligently goes to the gate. He gets up early. He's got to be there before other people are coming and going, going to their fields to do their work or, or coming into the city to buy. And he's waiting for that newer Redeemer. And so he sits down there and he waits. He submits himself to the biblical process gathers at the place, ready to submit himself to the authority and the accountability of the elders and the people that God had appointed. Now, you see here, another one of these, and it just so happened that it happened sort of phrases. You saw it coming, didn't you? What is God doing providentially? 
He's sitting there waiting, and who should come along at just the right time? There, it's a phrase like that again. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz spoken came by. Wow, everything is happening so coincident, so coincidental all through the story, isn't it? No, it's God in His providence all the way through. And so God brought that near Redeemer just at the right time. And Boaz, notice here, Boaz is, is very respected at the gate. The place where the elders meet, the place where the public witnesses are. He's very respected. I mean, look at what he's doing here. He's saying, sir, come sit down. I mean, would you like that if you were on the way to your field? I mean, you're, you're carrying your, your sickle and your harrow or whatever you've got going with you, and, and you're going out to the field like, hey, come here, sit down. Ah, no, come here, sit down. And they do. Everybody does. The ten elders. The ten elders of the city. The ten of you, come, sit down. Okay, here we are. We know Boaz isn't about frivolous, self-serving issues. They know him. They know that he is a man of excellence. He has God-formed character. And they know that when he says, come sit down, let's talk, it's going to be something productive, something worthwhile, something that has to do for the good of the covenant family. And so you see that not only does Boaz love Yahweh and therefore loves Yahweh's law, and therefore he's denying his own feelings and going about this process with under the authority and influence of, uh, and the accountability of the covenant people. But then you see also that Boaz loves Yahweh and therefore he loves Yahweh's covenant people through all this. He loves Yahweh's covenant people. Look who Boaz is concerned for. At what point does he bring his own interests up through this whole interaction? He doesn't. He doesn't. It's not about him. It's not about him. So he comes here and he sits down with these elders and he says, verse 3, to the Redeemer, to the near Redeemer, Naomi. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it. Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Boaz is concerned for Naomi's care. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that loving? He's, he's bringing about the fulfillment of this plan, Deuteronomy 25, for her care. And notice the text. Naomi, who has what? Come back from the country of Moab. I love that addition the description of Naomi. He could have just said Naomi, but the inspired writer said Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, because you could imagine how many pharisaical covenant people at that time would say, well, she gets, she, she gets what she's deserving. She, this was coming to her. She, she left us back when we were all starving. Could you imagine? But no, Boaz is like, no, this is still God's, God's woman. This is, these are part of God's covenant people. In spite of in spite of her long way around, she needs our care. She needs our love. She needs our support. This is, this is God's will. So he's concerned even for Naomi. I also see that Boaz is concerned for the blessing of the near Redeemer. He said, there's a piece of land. That's a good thing, right? You want land? I mean, even today, we're like, you want a piece of land? Yes! That's, that's one of the most stable assets that we can buy. 
This was a really good thing for Boaz to do, very loving. He said, hey, near a redeemer, do you want this piece of land? You've got first dibs on it. Go for it. Naomi needs the support, and I'm sure you would like the land. There's so much more here than, than what meets the eye, and we'll get to it in just a moment. But Boaz is concerned for the blessing of the near redeemer. Boaz is also concerned for the care of Ruth, even though he was a Mo- she was a Moabite. Now, this is a very interesting way that Boaz unfolds this plan. Like, you want the land? Good. Okay, now listen. Listen. Boaz said, verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. See, Boaz is also very concerned for Ruth. He loves Ruth. He wants her to be cared for. And who is she? She's a foreigner. She came from a pagan nation, and yet God changed her heart and brought her to faith in Yahweh. And he's, he's watching over her. He's caring for her. He's bringing her in. He wants her to be cared for. Boaz is concerned for the name. Notice, look at his reasons in here. In order to perpetuate the name, to perpetuate his inheritance. Right, this is very, very, and very important to the covenant people of God. Boaz is concerned for the name and the land inheritance of the dead, Elimelech and Mahlon, which is ultimately tied to what? God's covenant promises to Abraham. That's, that is what is most on Boaz's heart. I guarantee it. Why did they even have the Leveret Law? Remember? So that the land assigned to different families of Israel would not be lost to them by hardship. Why? So that God's land could provide blessing to His chosen people. Why? So that through those people, there could be a growth to become a great nation and eventually bring about the promises of the Messiah. You see? Land, people, blessing, a name, blessing to the nations. It's all closely tied together. You you lose the land, you lose the name. You lose the family inheritance. You lose the perpetuating family. Which family is God going to choose to bring about the Messiah? You see? I mean, this this was the hope of Hebrew women. Maybe it's going to be me. I mean, even back in in Genesis chapter 4, yes, chapter 4, Eve thought it was her. She heard the promise of God from Genesis 3.15. I'm going to give you a seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Then she had a son and she thought, this is the son, the Lord. This is the one. But it wasn't. You know, and other ladies all throughout redemptive history, this is the one. And so that's why it was so important. We need the land that God has given to us. We need to continue to grow as a people. And we need to preserve the names of our families. Why? Because God is going to make us a blessing to the nations, and bring about to the world the blessing of the Savior, the Messiah. So that's, that's what Boaz is all about here. And so he is offering this blessing then to the near Redeemer so that Ruth can participate in the multiplication of a family and the inheritance can be enjoyed. And they can, they can receive a participation in the covenant promises. Land, seed, receive a blessing, blessing, have a great name, 
give a blessing to the nation. So Boaz loves Yahweh, and therefore he loves Yahweh's covenant people. You see? That's why he's doing this. But Boaz loves Yahweh also, and therefore he delights. He delights in sacrificing his earthly possessions in order to advance Yahweh's eternal covenant purposes among his covenant people. Boaz, or the near Redeemer, if they were to take on the land and Ruth, would not be together necessarily a financial advantage. You see that in the response of the near Redeemer. Right? He says, okay, yeah, I want land. I want the privilege, but I don't want the duty. Right? I want the privilege. I'll take the goods. I'll take the earthly blessing, but I don't want the steadfast love responsibility. So in contrast with the Redeemer, Boaz acts in sacrificial act of redemption. It's interesting. What is, what is the name of the near Redeemer? You never know. That's, that's very purposeful, isn't it? In contrast with the nameless Redeemer who was earthly, calcul- earthly who was calculating in an earthly way, Boaz's sacrificial act of redemption would take away from the amount of earthly wealth that would have passed on to his sons bearing his name. You see, the firstborn son through Ruth by the Redeemer would bear the name of Mahlon and Elimelech, and they would receive the inheritance. So your son, your, the, the remainder of your sons who would bear your name would get less. And that's what the, that's what the near Redeemer says. Look at verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. You take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. Do you see, do you see how the near Redeemer is calculating? I'm going to miss out on earthly stuff. I'm going to miss out on my reputation being expanded. This is about me. This is about my wealth. This is about my inheritance. This is about my family name. And Boaz is like, I will sacrifice for the good of the covenant people and the perpetuation of of God's name and this dead brother's name and and the fulfillment of his covenant promises. And so they they made this swap. You can see the, the ritual. Now it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attestation in Israel. What is that about? You were gone to the bank and transferred assets from one person to another, and did somebody ever hand you their shoe? That would be awkward, right? You can keep your shoe. No, this is very intentional. Remember, all throughout the Old Testament, God told His people, wherever the, what? Soles of your feet touch, this is the land that I have promised you. Remember, remember those words to, of God in the Old Testament? Well, this is probably... A takeoff from that. It's a very visual expression of not only covenant commitment. Here, watch everybody in this room. I'm handing my shoe to this guy. This is a a, a legal transaction. This is done. Fulfillments have been met. But also it's to say that, that, that that, that this person is saying, I am giving you the right to inherit the land where my feet have the right to walk. Here, it's yours now. 
And that makes sense. And so Boaz completes this, this transaction with this man. He's willing to care for Naomi. He's willing to receive Ruth as wife and perpetuate the name of Elimelech and Mahlon and preserve the covenant people of God in that way. And Boaz's declaration, again, is so revealing. Look at his purpose statements. Verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, he, is, he has got such conviction here. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife. Why? To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. See, that's what Boaz is about. The covenant impact that Boaz has in mind is not about his own earthly advantages. It's about the preservation of the people of God so that the promises of God would be fulfilled. It goes way beyond his own inheritance. Boaz has calculated very differently than the near redeemer. Boaz has calculated in terms of the impact that his actions will have on the unfolding of God's eternal covenant promises among his people. Whereas the near redeemer has calculated in terms of the momentary strain on his pocketbook. Notice that the near redeemer's name, as I said, is not mentioned. In fact, there's a phrase that, that the text gives to us for his name, and it's almost in the Hebrew like Mr. So-and-so. Very interesting. Right? He didn't, he didn't enjoy, as he could have, the covenant blessings of God. You know what this is in modern day terms? You know what this is? Seek, God's, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's this. It's making that decision of faith. I'm valuing God's name, God's people, God's purposes. Even if it means a net loss for me in this way, this is what's most important. God will meet your needs in that way. And even, as we see with Boaz, abundantly. Or Luke 18, where the disciples were wrestling about the cost of discipleship and following Christ. Wrestling with it. So, well, we have forsaken families and houses and lands for your name. What do we get? What does Jesus say? He says, well, you get nothing. No, that's not what he says. He says, not one of you who have forsaken all for me will, will miss out on receiving even a hundredfold in this life and in the next eternal life. Isn't that amazing? That's God's gracious heart. And so consequently, by God's grace, Boaz receives great divine blessing. And again, don't mistake this for legalism or health and wealth gospel. That's not what this is. This is, this is that, that Boaz has been declared righteous by grace and he's been transformed by grace and consequently he loves God's law and loves God. And he's like David, a man after, after God's own heart. So look at, look at the fruit then. The blessing that Boaz has received from the hand of God amounts then to a share 
in the promises that God has made to Abraham, which both Abraham and Boaz believed and received by faith. What happens? Verses 11 and 12. Look at, look at the culmination for Boaz, the fulfilling, joy-filled blessing from the gracious hand of God. Boaz did not know the outcome of this particular meeting, did he? He didn't know. He went into it totally committed to God. And look what happened. First, Boaz's fulfillment is, is heard in the blessing of the elders and the people who witnessed this sacrificial redemption on Boaz's part. I love how there's like this chorus that, that keeps repeating wonderful themes throughout this, this final chapter. What, does he say? what do they say? We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah. May you be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is amazing. And this is all, it all happens. It all happens just like that for Boaz. A woman was coming into his house. Was that a blessing? Absolutely. Just like in the Garden of Eden. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. God brought her to the man. And so he brought Ruth to Boaz. And that woman would be used of God with Boaz to build up the house of Israel like Rachel and Leah. These are God's covenant promises being fulfilled. And by the way, he got the land, didn't he? So he got land. And now he's, he's growing his family. He's multiplying the people of God through the woman that God gifted him with. And God has been granting to him graciously godly character. Notice how it says, may you act worthily. It's the same word that we see describing Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. The excellent man. We've already seen from 2-1 all the way through his actions of integrity reflecting the loving kindness of God. And you know what? Boaz is not forgotten, is he? He has a name in Bethlehem. And how many years later now <laughs> that God used him to perpetuate his kingdom and bring about covenant fulfillment. He's got a godly name. The, the nearer redeemer calculating earthly things is forgotten. And a house blessed like Perez isn't that an interesting one that they bring up? Why, do, why, does the, why does the chorus, as it were, bring up Perez? May your house be blessed like Perez. Why? Because there was a leveret marriage there as well. Where Judah had, had promised to fulfill for Tamar, his daughter-in-law, that he would give her a husband. And, and also, Tamar was a Canaanite woman. A foreign woman come into the family of God. And certainly there was lots of sin in that background as well, wasn't there? Genesis, Genesis 38 is one of those hard chapters in the Bible to read. You start sweating while you're reading it. Can't believe this is happening in Israel. Right? And that's, that's purposeful. Because this is all about God's gracious work among His people. Redeeming them from their sin. Redeeming them from a pagan nation. Overcoming and and blessing them graciously. And that's what, exactly what God was doing in the house of Boaz. 
a pagan past, a sinful past, a levirate redemption, divine grace and blessing at work. And what else? What else did God give? That word, offspring, that is a huge theme all throughout the Bible, isn't it? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your what? Seed, offspring, and hers. See, this is God perpetuating the godly seed. This is God perpetuating the kingdom of his, of his righteousness. He's giving Boaz through Tamar, ultimately under the name of Elimelech and Mahlon, a seed. And boy, does that seed yield a great blessing later, doesn't it? They had no idea. That's what God is doing. God has shown Boaz great steadfast love, a land, a name, a seed, a blessing. God's covenant promises always come to fulfillment through so much, right? Through so much opposition, through so much difficulty. The purposes of God's loving kindness have come to culmination in Boaz's life. God has shown him great steadfast love and faithfulness. Number two, a culmination for Ruth. I have to warn you, I I really feel like I need to finish this. Because you've got to get the end of the story in one package. You've got to get up and stretch. Great. But I'm going to go ahead and finish this for us today. A culmination for Ruth. It moves quicker. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Remember, Ruth's past, one of pagan idolatry and sin, she was brought into Yahweh's family through suffering, through uh, Naomi's suffering. Ruth was brought to believe in Yahweh's covenant promises. We saw that in her confession of faith. Ruth was made the gracious workmanship of Yahweh. We see steadfast love being reflected in her life toward Naomi and toward Boaz. We've seen it all already. God providentially worked out the union of Ruth and Boaz through a mighty work of grace in her life. Ruth has run in faith to find shelter under the wings of Yahweh and has been generously given rest and redemption and restoration and rejoicing. And now we see the fruition of it. Notice what the fulfillment blessings of Ruth that God gives to her graciously. One, she became a wife. She became Boaz's wife. God had taken away her husband, right? Now he restores a husband to her and a godly husband to her. God gave her conception. The Lord gave her... Boy, that's a statement, isn't it? Maybe we'll talk about that more next week. There's, there's so many secondary lessons to glean from this wonderful story. God gave her conception. It's, the, it's God who does that. And she bore a son. God gave her a son. She didn't have any children before. Maybe for many years. I, I don't know. The story doesn't tell us the time frames perfectly how it all worked out. But God allowed her to become a very important part of his redemptive plans and purposes. Oh, how he has brought fullness 
from emptiness. God has shown Ruth great steadfast love and faithfulness. Number three, a culmination for Naomi. Then the women said to Naomi, this comes out again in the, in the chorus as it were. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For you, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you to seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Again, we know Naomi's past. I don't have to review it for you. What God brought her from and what He has brought her to. What grace and steadfast love and kindness. What faithfulness God has shown to Naomi. And notice again the fulfillment blessings that she receives from God's hand of providence. And notice that, that when He says here, or the chorus says, He has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Your, your mind immediately thinks that, that they're talking about whom? Boaz. But as you read further, who is he talking about? Obed. He has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May this Redeemer's name be renowned. He shall be to you a restorer of life. And for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you to seven sons, has given birth to him. Uh-oh, that's not Boaz, is it? That's Obed. God has provided for her beyond all that she could ask or think. See, her sons were taken away from her, weren't they? But now, what does the chorus say? A son has been born to Naomi. And that wasn't even from her own body. A son was given to her through someone else. Again, more things to talk about, but not this week. But God has blessed her. She has a redeemer. She has someone to, to seek her provision and protection and her care and justice for her and so on. And a Redeemer who will share in covenant blessing. He will be part of the name that God uses in Israel to forward His redemptive purposes. A restorer of life. Naomi came back destitute. Now, she's full. She's full. A nourisher of your old age. That's precious to someone who's of retirement and beyond age, isn't it? That's a very special feeling of provision from God to have children who you know will care for you. And a daughter-in-law who loves her. Oh, such a precious gift. There is some hyperbole here, but the point is so clear. This daughter who, who exercised steadfast love became a great blessing to Naomi. And the chorus says, better to her than seven sons a grandson who would be her redeemer. And, and notice the relationship that she enjoys here at the end of her, her days. She laid him on her lap and became his nurse. She was able to mother Naomi in a very special way. What a great blessing. And a grandson with a name, Obed. Obed. You know what that name means? Service. That's fitting, isn't it? Some people have said the name means worship. I mean, that's, that's where these women and this family would have felt after such a, a long journey through all this struggle and experiencing God's grace. What could they do at the end of all this but say, Yahweh, we worship you 
and serve you with our lives. Right? It's a very fitting name. Indeed, Yahweh has kindly brought fullness from famine in Naomi's life. God has shown Naomi great steadfast love and faithfulness. Please notice that the joy of God's steadfast love extends in this letter, in this book, way beyond Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. Number four, a culmination for God's people. What is the culmination in time for God's people? Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Who's David? He is the servant shepherd king Israel. They had chosen their own king in rebellion against God's ways, hadn't they? Who was that? Saul. Did that work out well for Israel? Not a bit. They currently, in the story of Judges, had who as king? No one, right? That's, that's part of the impact of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 22-25. And what does God do through Boaz and Ruth? He gives His people a shepherd-servant king who brings great blessing upon the people of God. Yes, David has his faults, but that's not the emphasis here. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved God's law. He gave his people song in the covenant promises of Yahweh and so much more. In fact, I love the end of Psalm 78. Let me just read it to you. Psalm 78, a beautiful description of David and his blessing upon Israel. Verse 70, 71, and 72 of Psalm 78. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. What a gift that God has given to his people in David. But again, I ask you, did Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz see this coming from their very ordinary lives? Two generations later, David? No. But oh, did God bless in his kind, gracious way. He took a farmer, he took a foreigner, put them together, and brought great blessing to his people so graciously, so kindly. The greatness of God's sovereign providence and steadfast love and fullness and kindness are here. But the story becomes even more amazing, right? Because number five, the eternal consummation. The eternal consummation. It's not just David that God gave to Israel. But through this line, God gave whom? Jesus. You turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and you see the rest of the, of the genealogy that began in Ruth 4. You see it there. All the way till we see Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Christ. What a, an amazing work of grace. This is the narrative that points not only to a redemption in time, but this is the narrative that points to the eternal redemption. Matthew 21.21. 21, Matthew 1.21. 21. 
You will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. What an amazing picture. What an amazing reality that God worked through Boaz and Ruth, and they had no idea. And the story is amazing because you see through the genealogies four names of four women, right? You see Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. These were foreign women, pagan women, who God had brought into His covenant family, saved them, cleansed them, formed them, and used them in His covenant purposes. And ultimately, all of this works to the glory of Christ. Boaz has been a godly redeemer, right? But Christ is the true redeemer to which Boaz's life points, to which the story points not only physically in the genealogy, but spiritually in God's redemptive purposes. Christ is the true righteous one. Christ is the one who delights to do God's will. He is the one who... He is the true man who would not rest until all the Father's will was accomplished in the redemption of His people. He is the one who loves the sinners, the faithless, the pagan, the nations, who shows grace upon grace to the humble. Christ is the one who sacrificed all to buy a people for God by His own blood, who laid down His life for us and gave Himself for us. And He's the one who has inherited a name above every name. Christ is the one through whom every promise of God is yes and amen. And He's the one to whom we are brought by a sovereign providence of God. Christ is the one who receives us in our unworthy state and provides for us and protects us and speaks kindly to us in the gospel. Christ is the one to whom we are wed so that we will be washed and transformed into His image and made to stand blameless before the throne of the Father. Christ is the one in union with whom we will bear fruit for God so that the Father will fulfill His redemptive plans in us and through us, even in the lives of others. He is the one who will be praised for all of eternity for the riches of His grace and kindness toward us. This is the end of the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And that's the end of each of our stories if we are in Christ, by grace, through faith. So as we come to the conclusion this morning, I just want to tell you, this is the main theme. Behold the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. He will bring us from fall to glory for His glory. Won't you trust His saving power? Doesn't a a story like this draw you to trust in God, to trust in Christ, to lay it all at His feet, to rest in Him? Won't you trust his providential working of grace in your life? Wherever you find yourself in comparison with the storyline of Ruth, won't you take shelter under the shadow of his wings? Maybe you're in the world still. You're in Moab. You're in sin. You're in unbelief. You're in a pagan way of life. Turn to Christ. Come to him. Leave it aside. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Maybe you as a believer have been humbled and emptied and broken by the heavy hand of God's discipline. Turn to Christ. Turn to God. Take refuge in Him again and again. He is faithful. He will accomplish all His purposes in and through you. Maybe you're in a phase of learning and working and growing and changing and and, and being disciplined and tried and tested. Trust God. He will empower you through His Spirit to receive all that He has for you, and to grow and be blessed. There are obstacles, there are worries, there are anxieties, there are fears. Trust the sovereign 
providential hand of God with every single one of them. And when do you enjoy the blessings of his kindness? Give thanks and praise him. For we don't deserve that. It's all by his grace. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves the one he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. And look, I want to underscore this a hundred times. Look what God does through ordinary people, through ordinary means, to accomplish his extraordinary redemptive purposes in Christ for his eternal glory. Draw the lines. Draw them every day if you have to. Draw the lines between Ruth's story and your story. See your own life through the lens of Ruth. Ruth is a strand, one strand in the tapestry of God's redemptive plans. So are you if you're in Christ. And it's all woven together to accomplish God's grand and glorious purposes. God has woven every aspect of daily life. Not only for Ruth and Naomi, but you. Into the tapestry of His eternal redemptive plans. They all work out for your good and His glory. You can count on it. You cannot tell your you cannot tell in your heavy afflictions today the redemptive impact that God will bring out of your life tomorrow and for all of eternity. But you can see it in Ruth. Turn to him, trust him, delight in his ways, delight in his word, his timing, his promises. And you'll experience the fullness of his steadfast love and faithfulness. But like I said, it's been my desire over the last few weeks to give us the big picture of Ruth. And I hopeful, I'm hopeful that next week we can even work out some of the secondary applications that the book of Ruth offers to us. Let's stand and, and we'll pray together. Father, we are so grateful to have this lens placed over our eyes as we look in the, letter, in the book of Ruth. But Father, help us not to forget it. Help us not to go about our lives and leave it behind. Help us to take it with us. Father, let our characters be formed by it. Let the way we think and process life daily be shaped by this truth so that we may be glorifying to you and praise you in our lives and for all of eternity. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together a couple of songs before we go.